0: Um I'm going to kind of continue part two of a first sermon I preached two Sundays ago, James chapter four, four through twelve. James writes this: "You adulterate, you adulteresses. do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry that your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to, to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not slander one another, brothers. He who slanders a brother or judges his brother slanders the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? Who are you who judge your neighbor? In order to make it to the celestial city, you have to have celestial city in your heart on the way there. And not just in some of your heart, in all of your heart. And because of that, it's in the heart where the most important battle is fought in your life. I want you to ask yourself this morning what are the most important battles that you're fighting in your life right now? If the most important battles are in your office, if they're between family members, if they're between your spouse or your kids or your parents, if your most important, if the if your most important battle is in society or in the culture or in politics, then let me tell you right now, you are losing the war, even if you're winning all those other battles. Because the most important battle you will ever fight every single day of your life is the battle inside your heart. Brothers and sisters, the war is inside your heart. From the very start of the letter until these verses today, James has been concentrating on that, on that same point. He's been concentrating on the heart. According to verse 1, he writes to the 12 tribes of Israel in the dispersion, and that was a, that was a phrase, these 12 tribes of Israel, was a, was a phrase to describe the early church entirely made up of converted Jews. They've been chased out of Israel, persecuted for their faith in in the Messiah. They're in in, in strange new Gentile lands looking for work. Their, Their finances dwindling every day. They're learning a new language and culture. They're facing new Gentile persecution for being Jews. And possibly they're facing hostility from Hellenistic Jews living in these same Gentile lands for being Christians. They're suffering under various trials, James says, at, at, the, at in chapter one. But what is the first thing James is most concerned about? You have joy in your hearts. He's, he's concerned about the condition of their prayer lives. Are you praying double-mindedly? He, he, he's concerned about the kind of attitudes the poor and the rich have, not their financial welfare, Instead of telling the poor to give him their resumes and and, and to see what what he can do, James tells the poor to boast in their high position in Christ. In their external trials, do they have the right view of God? Are they convinced that God is the Father of lights, the giver of of every perfect gift? For James, the most important battles in life are waged inside the heart. And yet, the battles don't stay there. Yes, the battles are the most important. Battles are fought inside the heart, but the victories and losses of the heart are experienced in real time, in real life. Those who have been brought forth by the word of truth and the exercise of God's sovereign will, those who have received the implanted word in the heart will be doers of the word so that you will know if the battle has been won in the heart by the way you use your words and your speech, by by how you care for, for widows and orphans, the kind of faith you hold in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ inside of your heart will be revealed in how you treat the rich and the poor among you. The kind of works and words that come out of your life will evidence either a true saving faith or a a false degenerate faith inside of the heart. See, what's inside the heart shows up outside in your life and the kind of practical wisdom you exercise in the real world. And the wrong kind of heart exhibits the wrong kind of wisdom that produces disorder. If there's chaos in your personal life, in your relationships, in your professional life, it's because of the chaos in your heart. You lust in the heart and do not have, so you murder you're envious in the heart and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You pray, but God doesn't answer your prayers because you ask with wrong motives in your where? In your heart. The thesis of this letter of James has been the pursuit of a wholehearted Christianity because Christianity is, is a heart religion. Christianity is a is a new covenant dispensation. Listen to Ezekiel, uh, describe the foundational quality of the new covenant in Ezekiel 26, 26 where God says, I will give you a new heart. The greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all of your what? Your heart. So the first letter written to the church concentrates on the heart of a believer. James says to make very clear that a believer's heart for God must be undivided, it must be wholehearted. And these verses four through ten is the heart of the letter about the heart. James in these verses gathers up all the issues he's been so far dealing with in the letter, and he summarized it he summarizes it with one all embracing demand in verses four through ten. Yes, we have a new heart indwelt by the Spirit that gives us the ability to love God, but our flesh, the fallen law or principle still resides within us it still constantly tempts us to love the world and as we considered two sundays ago the world works in tandem with our fallen fleshly desires and the first point we considered two weeks ago was the worldly roots of a divided heart versus four and five the roots of a divided heart are worldly roots the world if you remember works in coordination with the flesh of our hearts. It offers the world, offers an outlet to our sinful desires. It caters to those desires. The world tempts and supports and encourages and glorifies us all the sin our flesh yearns for constantly. But this friendship with this evil world system takes particular shape and form as idolatry. Once the hands of our flesh reach out to join the hands of the world, that lustful embrace takes the form of idolatrous worship. Our friendship with the world is, is religious in nature. The patterns of sinfulness, they rule over us like God. And, it, and it's these idols of our, of our choosing that become the master of our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors. And these idols, they spread like a disease within us. We don't have just one false god we worship, or two false gods. We have a multiplicity of masters and lords and gods. They include ourselves, other people, valued objects, personal ambitions, and even Satan himself. And The biggest mistake that we make is that we think we can worship all of these idols of ours, in addition to the one and true and living God simultaneously. We think God is okay with all, with our, with our personal syncretism. Half of me is, is better than nothing, right? And Israel thought that way too. You read in the Old Testament over and over how, how Israel worshiped both Baal and Yahweh. They would sacrifice at the high places. Oh, their idols in the morning and then sacrifice at Yahweh's temple in the afternoon. Israel presumed that God was fine with that, like we often do. We think we can be friends with the world from Monday through Saturday and then show up on Sunday morning thinking that God will, our, will accept our leftovers from the week. We're like, here God, take the crumbs of my life. Here God, take, take my last few pennies. And so God wants to make it clear at the outset of these verses that he rejects, he, he, total rege- he totally rejects that kind of approach to him. He's not indifferent to that. Friendship with the world is, is much more than an, an annoyance to God. He says in verse 4, Do you not know friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Do you know that? Do you know that this idolatry is adultery? He calls them in verse four, you adulteresses. See, when God gave you his spirit, it was a down payment to purchase all of you, verse five. Don't you think that the scriptures, that the scripture speaks to no Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no no purpose, that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he died for every DNA strand of your being. And yet even though we know that, we still fail to give God what he paid for and what he deserves. There still can be many times when the flesh and the world so corrupt us that we either feel like we're unforgivable or we feel powerless to do anything about it. The Pope comes in verse 6 when James tells us that God, he gives a greater grace. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, that led us to point number two, the the heavenly remedy for a divided heart. No matter how guilty you feel, no matter how hard the struggle it is to remain faithful to the Father, there will always be enough grace for our need and situation. He gives us a a greater grace, a, a mega grace. As great as our offense is toward God when we love the world, and as weak as we feel at times when the sins of our hearts and the temptations of the world conspire together to ruin us, God's grace is greater. The kind of grace that James is referring to is the grace that removes the guilt and penalty of our sin, and he's referring to the grace that that sanctifies us, that changes the inner life of our our souls. God gives this kind of grace in the greatest measure, that there is mega grace for our mega problems. But there's a qualification for this grace. James says that this greater grace breathes in the atmosphere of humility. He he quotes Proverbs 3.34 in verse 6. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you will not bow the knees of your soul to God, you will not receive God's greater grace. God's gift of forgiving grace and sanctifying grace are only enjoyed by those humble enough to admit their desperation for this grace. For the humble, there is always greater grace to be had. This begs the question then, how do I become humble? Well, that starts with knowing who you are. It begins with the knowledge of self. You must know yourselves reasonably well. You have to be a little honest with yourself. Specifically, we need to see just how prideful we are we need to recognize where our pride comes out in life because in order to repent from all our pride we need to first identify and recognize our pride with some degree of detail because friendship with the world and pride they, they come together like a two-for-one package deal that means that if you become friends with the world you become a proud person listen to 1 john two fifteen and. 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In an article titled 41 Evidences of Pride, Nancy DeMoss Wilgamuth asks 40 questions to help us see our pride more clearly and where our pride specifically manifests itself. Here are some of those questions. Do you look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, or less successful than yourself? Do you have a judgmental spirit toward those who don't make the same lifestyle choices you do, or dress standards, how you school your kids, entertainment standards, etc.? Are you quick to find fault with others, and do you verbalize those thoughts to others? Do you give undue time, attention, and effort to your physical appearance? Your hair, your makeup, your clothing, your weight, your body shape, avoiding appearances of aging? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Are you excessively shy? Do you frequently interrupt people when they are speaking? Do you often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, your church? Do you talk about yourself too much? Are you more concerned about your problems, and your needs, and your burdens, than about others' concerns? Are you self-conscious because of your lack of education, or natural beauty, or your socio-economic status? And I like the, the last two. Are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone you know? Are you feeling pretty good that none of these things really apply to yourself? some of those questions hit home for you, then you're ready to drink a big cup of humility in verses 7 through 10. If they didn't, you need the humility described in verses 7 through 10 even more. How do we win the battle of a wholehearted devotion to God in the heart? Yes, we need greater grace as we, as we consider two Sundays ago in verse 6. And as we will see in verses 7 through 10 today, even before that, you need a kind of humility, humility that will qualify you to receive more grace, that will prepare your heart to receive more grace. And it starts in verse 7 when James says, be subject therefore to God. The therefore in verse 7 shows that the following 10 imperatives in verses 7 through 10 are an expansion of the quotation in Proverbs 3, 34, that James cites in verse 6. They're a continuation of the verses starting in verse 4 of chapter 4. From chapter 4, 7 through 10, if you notice, the first imperative and the last imperative are virtual synonyms. Look at verse 7, be subject therefore to God, and look at verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. They form what we call an inclusio, and an, an inclusio is a way of highlighting the main theme of the verses contained between these two virtual synonyms. It's a, it's a way to summarize what will be contained within the inclusio. And so we already know that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble in verse 6 according to James God will grant his grace to the humble so we must become humble if we want to experience and enjoy that grace verses 7 through 10 therefore define the humility for us according to this inclusio what is genuine what is genuine humility verses 7 through 10 will define for us it will delineate the nature of true humility. The only kind of humility that exists in the world is Christian humility, and James will now tell us what that is in the form of Ten Commandments. The first quality of Christian humility, as I just read, is found in verse 7. Be subject to God. You need to know something about your heart. a core dynamic of your heart is its propensity for a relationship your heart is relational unbeliever believer everyone's heart is a is a relational type of metaphysical reality your heart is not primarily by itself and independent your heart is always God relational. Your heart is either against God in pride or it is toward him in humility and subjection. Your heart is either worshiping an idol or idols in the world producing chaos in your life or your heart is worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ producing a garden of spiritual fruit. Do you want more grace in your life? Be humble and James says that humility first starts by this relationship with God when he says, be subject therefore to God. That's where it all starts. Be subject to God. And and those those words mean to place yourself under the lordship of Christ. It means to commit yourself to obey him in all things. And this opening command grates like fingernails across the chalkboard of our contemporary culture. But it is this, but if this kind of life was good enough for Jesus Christ, then it's good enough for you and me. Because the notion here is of is of complete humble subjection, and it's modeled after the pattern of Christ's obedience to the Father. Jesus said in John six thirty eight, "For I have come down from heaven." Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus had a perfect heart, and that perfect heart was expressed in his subjection to God the Father. There was no one more humble than Jesus Christ. And we see that humility in his subjection to God the Father. Why should you submit your will and your thoughts and your emotions and all that you are to God? Well, He made you. God is your creator. He's the one that gave you your life. Psalm 119.73 says, Your hands made me and established me. Because God made you, He owns you. But there's more to it than that. When He made you, He designed you to worship and obey God. Did you know that you were created to serve God? You were created that way. And that means if you go against the grain of your DNA and the way you were inherently designed, it'll be disaster when you refuse to subject your life to God. You work best, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, when you do what you were designed and created to do. Are vacuum cleaners designed to clean up a messy backyard? No. Would the vacuum cleaner work if you tried? Maybe for a little bit. You know, you're out there, you imagine your neighbors looking at you. Why is he vacuuming the backyard? It might help a little bit, but sooner, rather than later, the vacuum cleaner will shut down, it'll break, and if you insist on using your vacuum cleaner that way, the vacuum cleaner will totally become unfixable. That's how our lives are. You were designed and created to be subject to God. And that maximum human flourishing is the result of this mission unmatched spiritual, emotional, mental well-being hinges on this first command to be subject to God. The second quality of Christian humility that qualifies you for greater grace is resist the devil, verse 7. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee from you. Scripture tells us that, that before Satan became Satan, he was an angel before God whose pride led to his fall and banishment from God. Turn to Ezekiel real quick. Ezekiel, Ezekiel, chapter twenty-eight, and Ezekiel records God's words to the king of Tyre, but the way he speaks uh, seems eerily similar to uh, God talking to Satan before he fell. And so we believe that that while uh, God is talking to the king of Tyre, these words most likely echo the, God's words to Satan when Satan fell from glory. Look what he says in Ezekiel 28. The word of Yahweh came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, thus says Lord Yahweh. This is, this is a description of, of uh, the ruler of Tyre's heart, but more than that, it's a description of Satan's personality. God says in verse 2, because your heart is lofty and you have said I am a God. I sit enthroned in the seat of gods. You are a man and not God. You're a creature, right? Although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold you you think you're wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding you have acquired wealth for yourself, acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. Let's skip down uh, to Verse twelve, you had the seed, seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the Garden of Gone, uh the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering: the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jas- jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of, of, of your settings, sockets, sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed sheriff who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. What was that unrighteousness? Go to verse 17. Your heart was lofty because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor so I cast you to the ground. This is the heart of Satan. And so when we grow in our pride, we're growing, we're being formed into the image of Satan rather than into the image of Christ. And therefore, James says, we are to resist the devil. The devil is proud. Resist him. And the second command in James 4, 4 says, is a natural corollary to the first command. Because when you place yourself under God's authority, that means negatively you also firmly refuse to bow to the authority of Satan. In case you didn't know, Satan is a real person who exercises real power and influence over you. When your life is spinning out of control, when you're living in sin, it is invariably the result of yes, these combination of idols within your heart, uh, uh, working together with with the idols in your social environment, uh, conspiring together. But there's one more player involved in ruining your life, and that player is the devil. And so the battle in the heart is against this triad of enemies. Your 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 biggest battle in the heart is against this interplay of these three almost invincible adversaries, and they are the flesh within, the evil world system without, and the supernatural power that Satan wields in the wo- world. If you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, the vanity fair that our lusts continually seek after was a vanity fair built by Satan himself. The idols of the world... And the demons they go hand in hand in the little literal worship of false gods listen to Corinthians 1 Corinthians 10 19 and 20 Paul says what do I mean then that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything no but I say that the things with which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons you see this triad of darkness in Ephesians 2: 1 and 2. Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's a title for Satan. And so if this is what we're, we're against, if this is what humanity is against, then what hope do we have? Who or what can help us? Can psychology help you? Cognitive behavioral therapy help you? psychoanalysis help you? Do we need Freud, a Jewish atheist, to overcome our biggest problems? You see, we have it totally backwards in the church. We think that the Bible can help us with our little problems, but it's psychology that can truly deal with the deep and complex issues of our life, But, but the opposite is actually true that psychology may help with peripheral things. It it may help with the effect of your diet on your emotions. It it maybe can help with describing the experience of somebody suffering with an issue. It can help with habits. It can provide temporal, emotional comfort and relief. But listen, for the deepest problems of the heart, psychology is powerless to change you for the better permanently, because it rules out the soul's greatest dangers. It intentionally rules out the welfare of the heart's greatest threats from the outset. What am I talking about? Psychology refuses to recognize the power of sin, the evil world system along with its ways of thinking and moral values that we're we're constantly inundated with. And number three, it refuses to recognize the reality of Satan and the nature of spiritual warfare. And when you take out sin, the world, and the devil in the counseling process, you take out all hope of real change. We engage in this satanic warfare by resisting and that's, that is an amazing thought if you think about it. And we have every spiritual, dis, every spiritual resource at our disposal in Christ that gives us the ability to resist the devil. And that means Satan is not omnipotent. That means when we resist him, James says, he will flee from you. When I was younger, when I was an unbeliever, sometimes you watch horror movies, and you know when those monsters attack. The people flee from the monster, and the greatest monster in the world. James says, "He will flee from you if you resist him." Whenever spiritual warfare is spoken of with respect to the devil in the, in the epistles, the message is very clear and and consistent. We are to resist. We are to stand firm through the ordinary means of grace. Look at. First Peter, right next, right, right after James, first Peter five, eight, nine. Peter says the same thing, same thing that James says. First Peter five, eight. Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Are lions pretty dangerous? I think so. Seeking someone to devour? Is that pretty dangerous? A lion was about to devour you? I think so. And James is talking about this, the the, the spiritual danger of the devil. And this is what James says, verse 9. But resist him. Resist him. How? Firm in the faith, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. Go to Ephesians. 6:10 real quick, Ephesians 6:10 where Paul talks about a spiritual warfare. and this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 he says, "Be strong in the Lord and in the might of strength. And Paul, Paul talks put, talks about putting on the full armor of God, Verse 11, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And what is this full armor of God? We, verse 14, we gird our loins with truth. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. We shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We take up the shield of faith, verse 16. Verse 17, we receive the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times, with all prayer, and petition in the Spirit, and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. We exercise faith, we hope in God, we go to His Word, and we pray for ourselves and for each other. This is how we stand firm against the devil. Well, there's a third quality of Christian humility that qualifies us to receive God's grace, and that's found in verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And as amazing as it is to have this access to power that causes the devil to run away from us, more unbelievably wonderful is what James says in the beginning of verse 8. That sinners can actually draw near to a holy God without being eviscerated. And when we draw near to this holy God, sinful, he won't flee from us like the devil. He will draw near to you. That is unbelievable. How do we do that? How do sinners draw near the glory and holiness of God and still live? Jesus lived a perfect life and his perfect obedience was imputed to you once and for all when you first believed. Then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. We can draw near to a holy God because of Jesus, his righteousness and because of his sacrifice. And then the father rose Christ from the dead as a declaration that he accepted his son's payment for her sins we can draw near to a holy god because of the resurrection and then hebrews tells us that as as the high priest on the day of atonement entered the holy of holies with a complete sacrifice to present to god so too did jesus with his own perfect and all sufficient sacrifice offer his his shed blood to the to the father christ appeared before god in this heavenly sanctuary to represent you and me to to reinstate his people in the presence of God. So, so we can draw near to God because we have a high priest in heaven who ever pleads his blood to the Father. Yes, Satan is in the world still today, and, and one of the ways he still attacks us is by bringing charges against us for our sin. As Hebrews, t- Hebrews tells us, Christ in heaven, as our high priest, he meets every guilty charge Pointing to his nail pierced hands and his nail pierced feet. We can draw near to God because we have an advocate in heaven sitting at the right hand of God. We can draw near to God with all of our pathetic, trivial, superficial, even insincere prayers to the one who is perfect in holiness because Christ sanctifies every prayer when we pray in his name. No matter how far you have fallen, If you draw near to God, you can be confident God will draw near to you. Don't run away from the God of love. Don't run away from the God of Christ, the God of mercy and grace. Turn to Him. Draw near to this holy God and He will draw near to you. The end of verse 8 unpacks what it means to come near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is a call for radical repentance. And it's the imagery of a Jewish priest drawing near in worship, offering a sacrifice. The cleansing of hands points to external behavior. The purifying of your heart points to the internal attitude that leads to that behavior. It's a reference to your deeds and your disposition. And James, he calls his... His readers in verse 8, he calls them double minded, which was a which is a theme of, of James. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 8, when the man who prays without faith, verse 8 says, being a double minded man, unstable in, in all his ways, God is calling those of us who have become divided in our loyalties, our spiritual instability, our double minded our double-hearted ways. He's calling us who've turned that way, who've been been straying in that direction, and he's calling us to total single-minded allegiance by drawing near and repenting from your sin. What is Christian humility? Verse 9, Christian humility involves a broken heart for sin. Christian humility requires a broken heart for sin. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, take your sin seriously. Take your sin personally. The laughter that James is referring to in verse 9, is it represents the casual way or the indifference to which we respond to our sinfulness with. The joy that uh, mentioned, this joy turning to gloom, is is not the joy of knowing Christ, but it's the joy that we find in the pleasures of the world and in our idolatrous pursuits while we minimize and ignore our unrepentant sin. Brothers and sisters, confession to sin to God must always be a broken-hearted experience. It should grieve us to the core of our being when we keep falling into the same patterns of sin we're so used to. Our our confession uh, of sin to God and to other people should never be robotic. It should never be a theoretical exercise. It should never be perfunctory. No confessing sin and turning away from that sin must be an almost sacred experience. It should be a weighty, sober moment of tragic import. And the joy of of forgiveness, the joy of Christ, the joy of resurrection comes after that brokenhearted confession. That's humility. That's humility. Have you ever had someone apologize to you and you know they didn't mean it? Ever have somebody who said, hey, I'm sorry, may forgive me." That's how God feels when you do that to Him. What is Christian humility? Well, we end right back where we started in verse 7. Verse 10, James says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Humility has as its ultimate referent the Lord Jesus Christ. We must humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord first before we can humble ourselves before others. True humility is ultimately tied to the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means there is no such thing as a humble unbeliever. Unbelievers can be nice. They can be kind. But true humility is reserved for those who humble themselves. What What does the text say? In the presence of the Lord. Humility must first start in the presence of the Lord before it can flow out and manifest itself toward others. And he says, don't let the world exalt you. Don't let the... Don't let your this unbelieving culture and society, don't go after that fame. Don't go after that type of notoriety. No, let, let God exalt you when he returns. Let Christ exalt you when he comes back with his kingdom. And how does he do that? Well, when he humbles you in his presence. James returns to the subject of slander in verses 11 and 12, and it And it connects very practically to the verses we've just been looking at. Because the very opposite of humility is is pride. And he's saying, do you know what the highest degree of pride is? It's when you slander your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 11 says, do not slander one another brothers. He who slanders a brother or judges his brother, slanders the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. See, the, the the proudest of the proud are those who slander other believers on a regular basis. And he's not talking about a wise discernment, but James is referring to the attitude where you scornfully judge someone's position before God. Maybe this person may have committed a, a sin against you. Maybe he's just Walking in a way you don't find acceptable, and and it's this slander when you speak negatively about some someone, it's loaded with this attitude of condemnation. It's the kind of slander that comes with a with a bitterness or a hatred that would send that person to hell if you had the power to do so. And James says, when you engage in that kind of slander, you've now become your own God. You've established your own law, your own penalty system, James says here. That kind of pride that James has been saying to turn from, it has turned you into somebody higher than God himself. You're acting like Satan. In fact, listen to this. When you're engaging in slander, it says more about you than it does the other person. When you're slandering somebody, it says more about your character than the person you're slandering. And so James wants to humble you in verse 12 with a a reminder. Listen, there is only one lawgiver and judge, verse 12. And he the one who is able to save sinners and to destroy sinners. This is a power you do not have. Where that person you've slandered goes after he has sinned against you is God's business, not yours. The kind of discipline that this person you've slandered receives is up to God, not you. What kind of rewards and blessings he receives, where he goes after he dies? That's God's jurisdiction. This is his world. This is his courtroom. And then he sends with, then he ends with a powerful question, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? John Wesley replied to this question with a poor, weak, dying worm. Worms don't have the the authority or stature to judge other believers. For James, the answer is silence. You're nothing compared to God, so stop trying to act like him. In the Pilgrim's progress at the gates of Vanity Fair, before Christian and his friend entered that place, They met a man, and the man told them this. Let the kingdom be always before you, and believe steadfastly concerning things that are invisible. Let nothing that is on this side of the other world get within you, and above all, look well to your own hearts and to the lust thereof, for they are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Set your faces like a flint. You have all power in heaven and earth on your side. You have greater grace. We will get through vanity fair, battered and bloodied, but James says that we can get through this place with a pure heart by God's grace. And yes, the flesh and the world and the devil They are powerful opponents who will will try to destroy you. But the way they attack is not by taking away your physical possessions or your earthly blessings primarily. They will attack you by corrupting your heart. They know where the war is fought and won you you know where the war is fought. they these three forces are way too mighty to defeat in our own strength. We don't fight against flesh and blood with iron swords. more willpower and personal ingenuity is like a squirt gun against the, the Panzer tanks of Hitler. Our only hope is more grace from God more humility in our hearts. So may the Father, through Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, bring us low in order that we might receive a greater grace.